even though they're considered to represent the biggest danger of accidental nuclear war, there's still no real movement to, to get rid of them. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt. The U.S. nuclear arsenal may be more accurate, deadly, and tempting to use than ever before. The number of warheads is down, but the technology now allows fewer bombs to do more than enough damage. Today, we're talking to Reuters investigative reporter Scott Paltrow about U.S. nuclear modernization efforts and also their potential consequences. Scott, thank you very, very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So can we talk for a second about the number of warheads? And uh, it's down from the height. Is that right? Well, it was at an enormously high level during the Cold War. It reached a peak during the Reagan administration of a total of about 30,000 warheads, uh, the U.S. and Soviet Union combined. Once the Cold War ended uh, and it looked like there would be some accommodation between Russia and the United States, uh, the treaties, the numbers of warheads and missiles, uh, bombs and so on dropped precipitously. Um, and we are now down to the point where uh, in 2011, uh, we signed the new strategic arms reduction talks with Russia, which limits uh, each side to 1,550 uh, warheads, or at least what, what the treaty defines as warheads. There's a little bit of fudge there, but that's, that's that, numerically, that's a huge reduction from the, the height of the Cold War. Um, but what's happening is that um, relations between the U.S. and Russia have become frostier since the treaty was signed. Um, and uh, a number of political things happened, including pressure uh, from the Republicans in the uh, Senate. And so even though we're sticking to the numbers, um, as as are the Russians, the limit of 1515 uh, warheads, we are... Um, totally modernizing, updating, um, and creating new warheads and weapons that are more deadly and much more accurate and can cause more destruction. Um, so even though the numbers are down, we are at a, at a point where with very little public awareness and very little public discussion, none of this was, was done openly. Uh, we're having our entire fleet of uh, nuclear weapons upgraded at a cost of what the Congressional Budget Office estimates to be $1.25 trillion, with the key dollars uh, over the next 30 years. Does, is that what we mean when we talk about or when we hear modernization, uh, reducing the number of weapons but upgrading those weapons and making them far more deadly and fancier? Right. The Cold War ended. Uh, 
the weapons to some extent were neglected, they weren't upgraded, and to be modernized, they simply need to be uh, uh, have old parts replaced, um, switches, items that might wear out, make sure that, that they still work. Um, that's the official explanation. In fact, um, it's being used as a sort of cover story for um, calling the weapons by the same names and model numbers, but making them into entirely new weapons with, with, that are much more accurate and therefore much more deadly. Could you tell us a little bit, in an article that you wrote, you mentioned specifically the B-61 hydrogen bomb, which officially has been around for many decades, right? But it's not the same bomb, right? Right. I, it's been around since the early 1960s, and it's gone through multiple models. Um, and the one that they are building now is has the same B-61 designation, but in fact it is being turned from an ordinary gravity bomb, like you know bombs that just fell out of the bomb bay, as you saw during World War II, to a smart bomb that has a guidance system and movable tail fins and advanced radar. Uh, so that it is, it's, it, you know, except for the exterior, it is an entirely new weapon. And you mentioned also, if I'm thinking of the right weapon, that it has some pretty interesting features, that the yield on the bomb can be modified? Right, and that, that's correct, and that's something that is of concern to many people who are worried about the current situation. Uh, it can be turned all the way down to where it's essentially a tactical weapon, meaning that it can be used against troops in a battlefield, um, to the point where it's about a small fraction of the size of a Hiroshima bomb. Uh, it can also be turned up to about 32 times the size of the Hiroshima explosion. But the fear is that if a bomb can be turned down lower, there will be more temptation to use it and more gambling that the other side won't respond with nuclear weapons or with major nuclear weapons. And that's by some people considered to be a, a very dangerous assumption to make. Right. You're talking about dial yield and tactical nukes. I mean, these are questions that really I don't think we've really wrestled with in a big way since I think Vietnam and maybe even a little bit before Vietnam. I thought this was I thought, you know, tactical nuclear weapons was kind of a resolved issue. Is this something that that people are discussing? Are generals talking about this now? Well, um the United States officially has no tactical nuclear weapons. Russia has lots of them, uh, and that's been a source of, of concern uh, in Congress and elsewhere uh, that they're violating a treaty on uh, tactical weapons. We officially have none. However, um, the B-61 bomb is the first uh, that we have the capability of dialing down to the point where it, in effect, is a tactical weapon. And we are planning additional uh, weapons, uh, including a uh, bomber-launched long-range cruise missile that would have would, would also have the same uh, adjustability. All right. Tell us about some of the other changes that are being made to the nuclear arsenal. What kind of other advances... Um are happening to these weapons. What about the submarines? Uh, what about the, the range of some of them? The, the Trident II miss, nuclear missile is is the nuclear missile that we use from submarines. And it 
has been transformed into a vastly more accurate weapon. Nuclear missiles have something that's called a fuse. It's spelled F-U-Z-E, which is essentially a device with sensors that tells the warhead when to detonate. Um, And up until now, the fuses on the tridents had been very inaccurate, and there was about a 20% chance of actually hitting the target. The fuse and other parts of the Trident missile and warhead have been rebuilt, and now there is close to a 100% chance of hitting the target. Uh, and these are, and that's important because many people consider our fleet of uh, nuclear missile submarines to be the most important part of our nuclear arsenal because they are undetectable and their missiles are intercontinental. They can fly, you know, extremely long ranges and they have the same yield or killing power as, as land-based missiles. Um, so the fact that they, these are now much more accurate you know, it shows a major change and a major ambition to upgrade. And of course, to go along with the new bombs and the, the new missiles, we are also planning to build as a direct part of this plan a new fleet of nuclear submarines and uh, building a new um, heavy bomber. Uh, you know, so that's why the cost ends up adding up to well over a trillion dollars. Um, they're, you know, in addition to the, the, uh, souped up B-61 bomb, they're also hedging their bets by building, you know, a long-range cruise missile uh, that would be launched from a bomber, uh, but it would allow the bomber to stand off at a distance far away from, say, Russia, way outside of the range of their missile defenses, and the cruise missile can travel quite a long way into, say, the heart of, of Russia. Um and that is the plan to have uh, the adjustable capability yield also. So there, there's a whole range of, of improvements and tweaking and uh, mod- you know, upgraded. Um, in some missiles, there's a, a third stage that's being increased in size so that the, the, the um, weight of the warhead can be heavier. That gives you an idea of the scope of what's going on. You mentioned specifically you've done some research into whether or not the United States even feels it needs ground-based missiles anymore, that maybe just two legs of the nuclear triad, meaning the bombers and the subfleet, might be a smarter way to go. Uh, can you sort of explain why that might be? That is actually one of the biggest concerns of people now, and this sort of growing coterie of scientists and former government officials who are very worried about the current situation. And the reason is we have um, land-based nuclear missiles, intercontinental ballistic missiles that are housed in silos in the ground. Um, they're located, they've been in the same locations for years. The, the Russians certainly know where all of them are. And the problem is that if we get word, whether it's, correct or not, that Russia has launched missiles at us, we would have the president that would have only a few minutes to decide whether to launch ours or not. And that's because uh, it altogether takes uh, about 30 minutes from the time of warning to actually getting a missile off the ground. And the idea is to get them off the ground 
before the Russian missiles hit us. And so you would have either President Trump or President Putin um, making a decision within a matter of minutes on whether to push the button. And there have been many instances, uh, which, for example, William Perry, uh, former defense secretary, describes in a book uh, of false alerts and equipment malfunctioning to falsely indicate uh, that an attack was underway. And at one point, uh, when Boris Yeltsin was the head of Russia, he actually had his finger ready to push the proverbial button because Norway had launched an experimental scientific missile uh, and it warned Russia, but Russia had never warned the radar technicians. And so word came that a U.S. nuclear missile was heading towards Russia and it was only, you know, about seconds away from pushing the button when they realized that this made no sense and it had to be a mistake and they pulled back. Uh, but that's the level of danger. Um, and the, the concern is, you know, having a weapon where you must make an, a decision whether to launch Armageddon or not in only five or ten minutes. There's an interesting story because this is related directly. There was a Russian a Soviet officer named Stanislav Petrov, who just died a few weeks ago, who was a hero uh, for having stopped the Soviet Union from launching. This was uh, actually it was 1983, and uh, <laughs> and there was just some sort of radar malfunction. And anyway, it was only, you know, one man stood between the world and nuclear Armageddon or a malfunction and nuclear Armageddon. And something similar occurred during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was there was a Russian sub that was under, I guess because they weren't in direct communications, they were under orders to launch under certain circumstances. And three officers, three top officers had to agree. And two of them voted to launch the missile at a, at a U.S. naval vessel. And one refused. And it was only because that one refused that there was no nuclear war over, you know, uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So is sort of the idea that if our nuclear deterrent were at sea or in the air, then there would be a longer time to respond because we'd be less worried directly about having our own weapons knocked out? Well, that's that's one part of it. There's several other um, considerations. One is that once we launch the ICBMs, there's no way to call them back or call them off. And that was done deliberately because there was fear of hacking, and before that there was fear of, you know, some sort of electronic interference that could turn them off or alter course. And so once they're off the ground, that's it. They're on their way to their target. Bombers, of course, there's much more time to call them back. And there's much more time for the submarines because, number one, it's impossible to know where they are. Current Under current technology, as far as we know, there is no way to tell where in the ocean a nuclear submarine is. So there's no urgency to fire so that it, because there's no danger that it'll be destroyed. And also uh, that 
you know, there's more time to decide because the uh, submarines are mobile and they can be much closer, located much closer to the, the shore of the target country. And therefore, you know, once they fire, it would take much less time for the missiles to reach their targets. There's also the issue of the silos themselves and the, the men and women who who work in them. They, these are the people that are are famous for getting in trouble for cheating. And a lot of the silos have been kind of passed over from the modernization campaigns. Is that also kind of part, part of this, too? Is that the kind of thinking of just abandoning it in, totally? Um, actually, no. I mean, I think the um, that cheating scandal and so on caught the attention of the Air Force uh, and Congress. And because there is now this emphasis in beefing up our ICBMs and we're investing so much money, um, the uh, per, you know the personnel are being trained much more carefully and they're setting it up so that there is a reliable group. Uh, and I spoke with a, a nuclear expert at, uh, at Princeton who himself had been in the Air Force and had been uh, an ICBM launch officer. And I asked him that it, you know, if, if the decision came and he had to turn the key to launch, would he do it? And he said at that time, yes, absolutely. That's how we were trained and we would follow orders. And I think that's, uh, you know, the mentality uh, now. Do you think there's any chance that we actually will get rid of our land-based missiles? Or is that something people are just throwing out as an idea? I don't think there's any chance. Republicans are very much in favor of beefing up our nuclear arsenal. president certainly is. And there is a belief that they're necessary, you know, that we've had them for 40 years or 50 years and that we need them and you know there's even though they're considered to represent the biggest danger of accidental nuclear war there's still no real movement to, to get rid of them speaking of accidental nuclear war i'm wondering if you know anything about uh the rumblings that kind of came out towards the end of october where we learned that the Air Force was prepping the B-52s to be in the air again, constantly patrolling the skies with nukes, and they kind of pulled back and said, no, that's not actually happening. Can you explain that to the audience a little bit? Well, I'm not actually, I have to say I'm not familiar with the, with uh, this most recent uh, discussion that you mentioned. I do know that during the Cold War for, for many years, we had B-52s in the air at all times prepared, to fire, and that was, of course, very expensive and very um, paranoid. But the idea of, of having of things being so tense now that we have to have Q-52s in the air at all times seems to me really excessive, and perhaps a, a sign of uh, how relations are worsening. Did you get a sense from talking to people how dangerous? experts think this time really is the tensions and uh... i think that, that the danger is increasing that there are people who important people such as former secretaries of defense uh and former top generals uh who are coming together and saying that, that things are so bad that the danger of nuclear war now is worse than it was during the cold war and that's because Hostilities have increased, but the public is 
totally unaware uh, of the dangers. Um, there's no institutional memory of uh, things like the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Berlin Wall Crisis, both of which threatened to trigger a nuclear war. If you talk to kids these days, they've never heard, you know, students, college students, they've never heard of, of these events. And there's just no preparedness for dealing with crises. So that makes the possibility of an accidental war much higher. And also you have a question of the rationality um, and judgment of the two individuals who are the only ones uh, who have the authority to launch Armageddon, namely President Trump and, and President Putin. What about North Korea? Well, yes, they're, they're, they're getting there. Right? They, they don't have nearly as large an arsenal as either Russia or the United States and can't do nearly the same amount of damage. But yes, they're, they're definitely getting there. Well, it sounds like we live in an ever more dangerous world, uh, which is unfortunately what we seem to discover every time we do this show. <laughs> so That's sad. It is sad. <laughs> do you keep up with the do you keep up with the bulletin of the atomic scientists? Um, I've looked at various issues. Um, I, I, I haven't kept up with it because I've only you know been working on this for for a relatively brief time. But I've looked at uh, it's, it's a very good publication. It's interesting that um, you know they have uh, their so-called atomic clock, which supposedly indicates how close we are to nuclear catastrophe. Uh, and the closer it is to midnight, the worse the danger is. And uh, for this year, for 2017, they moved it closer to midnight than it has ever been since 1953, which was the year after both the U.S. and the Soviet Union launched their first uh, hydrogen bombs. So I think that's a pretty strong indication that at least the scientific world is is quite alarmed now. Well, Scott Paltrow, thank you so much for joining us, scaring us to death, and educating us all at once. <laughs> thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's show. If you enjoyed it, leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find it. We especially want to say thanks for this review from P.K. Singh. An outstanding podcast. Objective, rational, fact-based. Mr. Singh, the check is in the mail. So everybody else, leave your own review, and you never know, we may read it on the air. You can also leave us any comments or thoughts on Facebook. We are facebook.com slash warcollegepodcast. And you can tweet at us, too. We are at underscore War College. War College is Jason Fields and Matthew Galt. And we'll be back next week with another scary episode. is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. 
Hi, folks. This is Rick Wilson from The Daily Beast's The New Abnormal. And I'm Molly Jongfest, a left-wing pundit and editor-at-large at The Daily Beast. I'm also an editor-at-large at The Daily Beast, a former Republican political strategist, best-selling author, and full-time troublemaker. Every Tuesday and Friday, we have fun, sharp conversations with people like Mary Trump, who revealed why her uncle is the worst president we've ever had. Or Ben Stiller on how the world of comedy is changing thanks to our political landscape. Tune in to The New Abnormal to hear us have fun conversations about a world gone mad. ACAST is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts.